Okay, so Hebrews chapter 13, we're finishing up the book of Hebrews, and then the next two Sundays are going to be one-offs, and then we're going to be jumping into the book of Galatians. And after the book of Galatians, we're going to be jumping into an Old Testament book, Old Testament passage to really kind of, we wanted to go through all of this so we could really understand the proper way of interpreting the Old Testament uh, in itself. So Hebrews 1 through uh, 11 has kind of laid out the preeminence of Jesus, how the old covenant and the old way of doing things has been changed and how Jesus in the new has been the perfect priest, the perfect king, and everything else was going into that in Hebrews 1 through 11. Then in Hebrews 12, we kind of get into um, some more ways of, of thinking about this. And in Hebrews 12, we talk about discipline. Remember last week, we were talking about what are some interesting ways God uh, disciplined, or not, excuse me, your parents have disciplined you, right? We were talking about that. At a, when we go through hard times, we sometimes think, well, we've done something wrong. It's a sin, and that's always a good thing to reflect on. But in the other instance, too, we need to think God allows us to go through these to prune us to do better for him. And then as we get into Hebrews chapter 13, um, this is kind of the final exhortation that the writer of Hebrews gives to the intended recipient, which are the Hebrews. And in this, we see several different things, <clears throat> specifically in regards to Christian ethics. Uh, how is it that a Christian should live? What is it that a Christian should do? And what is it that a Christian should not do? And in Hebrews 13, it's really, if we divide this up into different chunks, you can see what this is looking for and what this is supposed to be encouraging to the people that this was intended for. So if you have your Bibles, look at Hebrews chapter 13. I'll be reading through the NET version today because it's, the way it's worded is closer to the original uh, and it makes a lot of sense as we start to unpack this. So your Bibles are going to sound or look slightly different than the NET, but I'll be reading from the NET. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Brotherly love must continue. Do not neglect hospitality, because through it some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, and those ill-treated as though you too felt their torment. Marriage must be honored among, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, for God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. Your conduct must be free from the love of money, and you must be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you and I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid, for what can people do to me? So as we look at verses 1 through 6, I want to hit a pause right here. This is, the writer of Hebrews is giving us an understanding for ethics. Now here's what's awesome. Why is ethics coming at the end of this book of Hebrews? What has the writer been doing in chapters 1 through 12? He has been laying the foundation of doctrine. He has been teaching doctrine and what Christianity actually is. What is it that Christians actually believe and what is it that we do not believe? And he was doing this against the backdrop of Judaism and comparing and contrasting what these Jews, who are the intended recipients, were assuming about Christianity, how they have rejected Christianity, they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so the writer just exposits and just brings up a beautiful logical argument all through chapters 1 through 12 about doctrine. Now, the thing about understanding doctrine and the thing about doctrine is, how many of you guys and girls hear that word often? Not nearly as often as we ought to. And what's interesting about doctrine and what's interesting about Christian doctrine is that up until the late 19th century, doctrine has always been the driving force behind churches. Doctrine has always been what pastors rely on to exposit, to teach to the people that are receiving it. 
But after the 19th century, and even before then, doctrine started to go away because that term was too dogmatic. People did not like that term. And so in order to appeal to the people, we had to kind of change that up. And you move away from doctrine, and you get into religious practice, which is also kind of the same thing. But the problem is, is that so often what's happening right now is that people are wanting religious morality without being able to root that in any kind of doctrine. People are wanting us to live moral lives, but they have no basis or standard to root that in. And so what the writer of Hebrews has done in chapters 1 through 12 is lay out this doctrinal foundation. Lay it out. So the person and the intended recipients can be receiving that doctrine be saying, okay, well, what's next? How does this play out practically? We get that we shouldn't be doing this. We get that we shouldn't be doing that. And I just love how the writer, I mean, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but it really seems convincing that Paul potentially had some influence heavily within this letter. And as we get into the first few verses of this, we see that we have to understand doctrine in order to live out a moral life. We don't live a moral life to understand doctrine. We understand doctrine in order to live out a moral life. Why is it that you choose to do good if you are a believer rather than sin? You know, if you ask, if you ask children, right? Let me ask my son. He's here right now. Caden, how do you think and what do you think you could do to show mom and I that you love us the most? What is it that you could do? Do what we say. Yeah, you, that's what we say to do. Clean the house. <laughs> so think about that. If you're asking children, hey, how can you show your parents you love them the most? The children most of the time will respond something similar like, well, by doing what they ask me to do. Yes. So you understand then what God has told us to do. The way we show him that we love him is we do it. You see, and so often this is where this uh, kind of uh, sect gets intersected between faith and works, right? We have faith, but it's through our works that we demonstrate that we have faith. And what's interesting, though, is some people put works before faith and say, no, you do your good works that you may receive faith, but clearly that is not what Christ taught. And so what I'm saying all of this is that we've got to understand and hold doctrine very closely to even understand how to properly live out our life. For us to be able to exemplify the love that Jesus has done to us so that others may see our good works and do what with that? Glorify not us, but our Father who is in heaven. Right? So look at verses uh, 1 here. There's a couple of different instances that the writer is telling us. The first thing, and I love this, the first thing that we see is we are to show love in our behavior towards outsiders, towards others. Look at this. Brotherly love must continue. Well, what is this talking about? It's the love amongst believers together. We must continue to love each other and not be angry, not have turmoil, not cause gossip, not to slander, not any of that. That must continue. Do not neglect hospitality. Hospitality, how? To each other, to believers. is by hospitality in which we are inviting each other into each, our lives together. We are sharing troubles with each other. We are growing together. We are encouraging each other. We must to we must continue to have hospitality. Why? Because through it, some have entertained angels. So this is a reference back to Genesis, in which these three individuals come, 
clearly it was the Lord. Abram recognized that it was the Lord. This is when they said, hey, your wife's going to have a baby. Sarah laughed. They said, what, you don't believe us next time we come? She's like, no, I promise I didn't laugh. No, you did. So this is what it's saying here is that we are supposed to show hospitality. Now, don't do that and be like, well, I've got to be hospitable with everyone because that could be an angel. We're not doing it because it could be an angel. We're doing it because God tells us to do it, right? So let's not get so pragmatic here. Look at verse 3. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them. And those ill-treated as though you too felt their torment. Remember, persecution has been happening right now within this church. Persecution has been happening to Christians at this time. And it was happening because Christians were living radically different lives than the rest of the world. See, the hardest thing that I see even today is that Christians, you can't differentiate a real Christian from not a real Christian. You can have two people confessing Christ, but then the way in which they're acting is not very polar opposites than anyone else within this world, right? And so the writer is saying, we need to remember those who have exemplified their lives. They have lived their life in such a way that they have become persecuted and are even in prison and are being tormented. We are supposed to pray for them. Now look at everything is not on us, right? Our focal point and our attention is on other people. Instead of it being on me, my concern needs to be for my brothers and sisters in our assembly, my brothers and sisters who aren't here anymore. And that is where our focus is. So the first thing that we see in ethics is we must have an ethic of morality that focuses on others rather than ourselves. But the interesting thing is when I focus on others, it is the way in which I conduct myself that affects others. You know, growing up as a pastor's kid, what, first off, when you think of the term pastor's kid, what comes to mind? Probably a, a hellacious demon, right? And to an extent, I may or may not have been that child growing up. But how I acted reflected either negatively or positively on my parents. See, as a kid, I didn't realize that. When I went and toilet papered the neighbor's yard and threw eggs at their house thinking it was fun, I thought that that was a good time. Little did I know that that could potentially reflect poorly on my father and thinking, oh, your child's completely undisciplined, which is what we were talking about last week in Hebrews chapter 12. So the way in which we act and the way in which we conduct ourselves and what is a priority in our lives reflects two things. Ultimately, it reflects on who you are attached to. It reflects on who you listen to, but then ultimately it reflects about what's inside of you, right? And so we need to be cautious about that as we look at ethics. How is it that we are engaging with those outside? Now look at this. After the ver uh, verse in three, let's look at four. Marriage must be honored among all and the marriage bed kept undefiled for God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. Now, this is interesting. In verse three, he's talking about prison, right? And then immediately now we're talking about sexual immorality. I, there's a logical disconnect here that's like, what in the world? It's like, hey guys, love each other, be brotherly love, do this and this. Hey, by the way, no adultery. Right? It, it kind of stands out as you look at this because the next verse here is talking about money. It's just, this is showing us the ethics now concerning ourselves and how it is that we view ourselves. We cannot be like the world. And if you think about the root of paganism and the influence of paganism at that time, this is what he's referring to is that marriage must be honored among all. Now, honored among all, you're like, well, what does that mean? It, husband and wife, that's what we're talking about. But how is it that you honor a married couple within an assembly like this? You honor a married couple in an assembly like this 
to not root them against each other. Going back to verse 1, brotherly love must continue. Show hospitality to each other. You get a newly married couple with an assembly. You show hospitality to them. You honor them among all people by bringing them in, helping them. Titus 2, discipleship, right? Helping them, grow them, mold them. But then the same time, and I know that this should go without saying, dudes don't need to be hitting on other people's wives, and other people's wives do not need to be hitting on other wives' husbands. That has no place in the church. And sadly, I've been a part of churches in which there was a pastor who, in fact, did exactly that. Slept with somebody within that church's wife, which is horrific. That is... I can't even begin to unpack the anger, the righteous zeal that I feel against this. But this is what this is saying. We must honor the marriage among all and keep that marriage bed undefiled because God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. That's scary. God will judge everybody, but the fact that we see consistently the sexually immoral is called out, that's when we need to be very cautious and take heed to this, right? So now let's look at verse 5. Your conduct must be free from the love of money, and you must be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you and I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can people do to me? See, the whole reason why we are supposed to be living this way is we are supposed to be living our lives in a manner in which we are giving honor and glory to the one who created us. The whole purpose of this is what is a chief's man? What is man's purpose is to give glory and honor to God and enjoy fellowship with him forever, right? When we do that, when we actually live that, all of this stuff is understood and this will happen. But sometimes, because we're thick-headed, dense people, we need it spelled out. Now, the reason why we do this, your conduct must be free from the love of money and you must be content with what you have. Well, why do we say this? Why is all of this here? So those who are looking from the outside in see the difference between the way in which Christians are acting and non-Christians. Can a non-Christian live an ethic life, a moralistic life? Yes, they can. The problem is, is where and how are they grounding that? When you have a judge, right, that's in a courtroom, that's that's hitting that gavel, what is he basing that judgment call off of? The law, right? And here's what's interesting. Who who made that law? The people did, right? But realistically, if you really trace this back through the law of cause and effect, it goes all the way back to the Ten Commandments, which is the root of the law that all of us operate off of, And Romans 1 and 2 talks about that because otherwise, without a standard outside of ourselves, without outside of human opinion, everything is subjective and there is no absolutes, right? And and to me, that's scary. So the way in which and how we are supposed to be living our life, we've got to be free from the love of money. We cannot have sexual morality here. And the reason why he is saying this too, think about this, going off of verse 3, remembering those in prison with them. Imagine the church at that time is nervous. Am I going to be in prison? I'm praying for them in prison. My, my neighbors got thrown into prison. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to have money, this and that. And then he comforts them in the latter portion of verse 5. I will never leave you, and I will never abandon you. So you can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, and I cannot be afraid for what can people do to me. There is a, a Christian missionary, Henry Martin, back in the early times, who was a missionary to India, and I love this saying. He says, if God has purpose for me, I cannot die. And so he was able to go out and to minister to these Uh, very hostile to Christianity, religions and stuff. And he was able to operate, not neglecting, not being not safe, but because he knew that if he was doing what God wanted him to do, God's going to take care of him. And so in the small sense, when you're dealing with struggles and stuff here, it's like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to 
pay that bill. I don't know. You know, I'm going through this problem here. God's not going to leave you. He's not going to abandon you. And sometimes we need to remind ourselves that. So we see how we're supposed to be behaving. We see what our morals are. And then he takes a shift here, which is kind of what we're going to be hitting on. Look at verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke God's message to you. Reflect on the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all sorts of strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not ritual meals, which have never benefited those who participated in them. We have no altar that those who serve in the tabernacle have no right to eat from. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood our high priest brings into the sanctuary as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, to sanctify the people by his own blood, Jesus also suffered outside the camp. All right, let's hit a pin here real quick. Let's focus on verse 7 real fast. Remember your leaders who spoke God's message to you, reflect on the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. What do we hear Paul say all the time in his epistles? Imitate me what? As I imitate Christ, right? The purpose of, and we're going to get into this in a little bit later here, the purpose of the leaders, the pastors, right? The purpose of them is to bring God's word in full clarity to the people and to also imitate what the ethics look like. The, the, the pastor should be the prime example to model to the people about what godly living should look like. A pastor, which is why there is qualifications and it is a calling, it is not something that they choose, it is a calling to get to that point, need to be the example for everyone to model and demonstrate because you're not modeling off of this guy He's modeling off of Christ, but we are the mediators between the people to bring them to Christ. Not that we need to be the mediators, but God has used the office of preaching in the way in which he speaks to his people. And we're going to unpack that here in a little bit. But he says this in verse 7 to show, okay, this is what the ethics are. Look at these guys. These are the people who should be living their lives in a manner worthy, right? And then it gets into verse 9. Again, hitting on false teachers. Don't be carried away by the same strange teaching. And then you see here, talking about ritual meals. This is the same thing about people participating in these feasts and these meals that were celebrated in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament that no longer have any applicability here. That is done with. He's already unpacked all of this, and he's just kind of re-hitting on, don't be dissuaded by these false teachers. Don't be dissuaded by these false people. And then if we look here, look at verse 12. Therefore, to sanctify the people by his own blood, Jesus also suffered outside the camp. Where was Jesus crucified? Inside the city or outside the city? Outside the city. This is a reflection back on the Old Testament, or excuse me, on the sacrifice of Jesus, that Jesus had to carry the cross to Golgotha, and he was crucified outside the camp. So he's saying the tabernacle where those burnt sacrifices were done inside the city, but the ultimate sacrifice, the actual true sacrifice, was the one that was done outside the city. So he's saying you don't need to be doing these meals anymore because the real sacrifice that paid for all of that happened already, and it happened not within the confines of how the Jewish individuals wanted it to happen. It happened according to God's plan and according to what he wanted to have happen. Does that make sense? So that's where you see this suffered outside the camp. And then look at verse 13. We must go out to him. We must go out to him then outside the camp, bearing the abuse he experienced. See that right there. When Jesus was still here, he says, if they rejected me, they will reject you. If they have persecuted me, and we see all the other apostles in the books of the New Testament saying, guys, don't be surprised when trials and tribulations and stuff happens. Don't be surprised. If it happened to our master, how much more so will it happen to you? But when it happens, 
especially when you're being persecuted for your faith, in that we should rejoice because we are rejoicing that we are sharing in a part of the same suffering that Jesus himself suffered in which people were attacking his personal identity and what he actually came to do. So we get to share in the like suffering because we are transformed from one part of glory into another. We are being made through our process of sanctification to becoming more holy as he is holy. Verse 14, for we have come to no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What is that in reference to? What is the city yet to come? The kingdom of heaven, the second coming, right? So we see eschatology is brought into this, the future of what is about to happen. Notice though, he's not sitting here and camping out like a lot of us modern-day Christians like to do. Well, was this pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, pre-trib, post-trib, this trib? It's like, hey, he's coming back. Let's just get that. He's coming back as he said he would. Now, I'm not saying, if, if you like to study that, I'm not knocking you at all. I'm not. What I'm saying, though, is we can't know with 100% certainty what it is other than that we know that he is, in fact, coming back. And in that, I can rejoice. So look at this. We have a lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. Verse 15, through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his name, and do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Look at this. This is almost a direct tie back to how Christian community is supposed to be conducted. Acts 2, 42 through 47 talks about this. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Share what you have. Don't sit there and hoard everything. Share everything. Look at back at the beginning portions of Hebrews 13. Don't be the love of money. If you love money, guess what's one thing you're not going to give? Money. If you love your things and your stuff, guess what you're not going to allow people to borrow? Your things and your stuff. And the more that you think that you've created or you've gotten all of this because of you, the less you actually realize where it actually came from. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Above. Everything that we have, we are stewards of. Nothing belongs to us. But so often we think, no, this is my phone. No, this is my... Literally everything that you have, you did nothing to earn it. God allowed you to have that. Where you think, well, Ethan, I bought that. Yes, you did, but how are you able to have breath in your lungs to be able to work to earn the money to buy that? God has allowed you to stay alive. God has given you the functionality to work in that way, to be able to have that skill set, to be, have that intellect, to be able to have everything, so that that money that God has allowed you to earn, you can purchase that. But if this is all coming from God... I need to give back what God has given to me to my brothers and sisters when they have need. And on top of that, to give back to the church. If you haven't picked up what I'm talking about here, I'm talking about God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over everything. Everything that you have, God has allowed you to have that. And we see that. We're supposed to share what we have because God is pleased with such sacrifices. And don't we want to please our Father? Don't we want to please God? Verse 17, here we go. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls and will give an account for their work. Let them do this with joy and not with complaints, for this would be no advantage of you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to conduct ourselves rightly in every respect. I especially ask you to pray that I might be restored to you very soon. I want to quickly talk about the role of the pastor within the ministry of the church. Now, I don't know how you view me, but whether you want to admit it or not, whether you even care to admit it or not, I am a pastor for you. I operate under Pastor Trailer's authority. I've been ordained within the church. 
I am a under-shepherd of Christ, as though Pastor Trailer is an under-shepherd of Christ, but I operate under his authority. And so as a pastor of Crossroads, again, you may just vomit in your mouth at the thought of that, but that is what it is. But look at what is supposed to be done. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls and will give an account for their work. Look at John chapter 13, verse 20. I don't want you guys to think that I'm just sitting here like, guys, honor me, obey me. I want to show you what submission looks like. How many of you actually like that word submission? I know I don't. A lot of people don't like that, right? Some people do, some people don't. Let's look at John chapter 13, verse 20, and let us see what our Lord and Savior says. Because like I said earlier, Jesus has chosen foolish men to deliver holy doctrine, partnering with the Holy Spirit through the power of the Holy Spirit to save and regenerate people to accepting Christ. And look at verse 20. I tell you the solemn truth, whoever accepts the one I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So first off, anytime you hear of a pastor and overseer, the first thing you need to think of is, what is it that we say when a pastor takes a position? What does that individual typically say? I was what? Called. I was called into ministry. Now, granted, what scares me about this is there's been times in my life in the past in which people have said, you know what? I think I could become a pastor. I would like the, I would like the opportunity to stand before a bunch of people and say things and, you know, and really sway opinions and stuff. That is not a call. To me... You humble yourself to take this. You don't want this. Why don't you want this? Because of the responsibility of taking care of the souls. And look at this. When you have that call, you can do nothing else. You can't. You can't. And Jesus says, if I sent this person to you, Romans 13, whoever God has allowed to be in authority, he has given that. God is sovereign over this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Jesus says, if I send this, you need to accept them. Now look at James chapter 3, verse 1. I'm building my case. James chapter 3, verse 1. Look at this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we will be judged more strictly. Because the thing is, is whoever the pastor is, whatever it is that I say, I will be held to a different standard because I am now influencing your souls either towards to be more like Christ or I'm leading you away from Christ. That is why no, if someone's got the call to ministry, they do not need to take this lightly. When you've got the call to preach or you've got the call to be a missionary, you've got the call, you are held to a different standard because you are directly and indirectly affecting people's souls. And to that, that is scary. That's why I say, like, people don't need to take the call to ministry lightly. I'm like, you know, that sounds like a good idea. I'll do that for a couple of years because it's not for everybody. And it's, it's in ways, it's such a, a, a phenomenal thing to see people grow but in the same way, the amount of attacks and criticism you get because if God can discredit one individual, what does that do to the whole entire group? It would disrupt and destroy as we have seen time and time again. Now let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. I'm saying this because I'm trying to outline 
the purpose of submission, the purpose of obeying. 1 Peter chapter 5, starting verse 1. So as your fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, and as one who shares in the glory that will be revealed, I urge the elders among you, give a shepherd's care to God's flock among you. Exercising, look at this, oversight. This is talking about leadership. You are to exercise oversight, guidance, leadership, not merely as a duty, but willingly. How is the pastor supposed to be doing this? Willingly under what? God's direction. Not for shameful profit, but eagerly. And do not lord it over those entrusted to you, but be the examples of the flock. What this is saying is that you are supposed to submit yourselves to the pastor, and the pastor reciprocating that should not be some dictator from the pulpit telling you, you will do this and this and this for me, and I'm not lording it over you like, submit to me. Submit, bend the knee. No, no, no. I bend, the, the pastor bends the knee to serve the people. But notice how it is done through elders, not for shameful profit, but eagerly, and do not lord it over those entrusted to you, but be examples of the flock. The pastor is supposed to be an example to the people. If you catch the pastor out doing stupid stuff, completely being hypocritical to what he's preaching, that dude does not need to be a pastor. They need to step down immediately. They are disqualified. You should be able to see the pastor, and he is the same place, the same person, the same, the same things in and out of church. No matter where you find them in the country, they are the same person. They are not changing it up and blending in with the people, put on their Christian pastor hat, and then put on their normal person hat later. It's everywhere. They're supposed to be that everywhere. Look at verse 4. Then when the chief shepherd appears, see, the pastors are the under-shepherd. The under-shepherd, who's the chief shepherd? Jesus. Jesus is the chief shepherd. When he appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble." Does that not reflect back into Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 about brotherly love? We're supposed to be humble with each other. We are supposed to not think better of ourselves. We are to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud. Verse 6, and God will exalt you in due time if you humble yourselves under his mighty hand by casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Be sober and alert for your devil roars, prowls like a roaring lion, is on the prowl looking for someone to devour. And then last one, look at 3 John chapter, or 3 John verse 4. There's no chapter. 3 John verse 4. And all of this, I am expositing all of this to give you an understanding. Because when the pastor is submitting themselves to God, and a pastor is humbling themselves to accept the call to ministry, accepting the call to that position, when a pastor does this, and he is watching over the souls, there's no greater joy for a pastor than in this, 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than this. I mean, think about that. No greater joy than this to hear that my children are living according to the truth. So this points back to what the focal point of a pastor should and continually be, to preach the word in season and out of season, to model a biblical example of the Christian life and pointing people to truth. Because in verse 17 of Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls and will give an account for their work. And then let them do this with joy, not with complaints, for this would be no advantage of you. So what the writer is saying is, when you obey and submit yourself to the pastor, it benefits you. Because the last thing that is helpful for a pastor 
is when they're about to get up to preach and someone comes up, I've got a problem with you, guy. I don't like what you said to me. I don't like what you did to me. There's, I don't like how you're doing this and this and this. And they're causing controversy. That will affect, sadly, because we are still fallen vessels, that will affect the ability of the preacher to be able to communicate accurately the word of God. So when an individual, when you submit and obey them, again, that pastor should not be lording it over them. But the problem that I have seen in modern America and even within this group is a poor amount of submission and obeying to the authority of the pastor. The amount of disrespect that pastors get befuddles me. I don't understand it. These men have dedicated their lives to, to spend hours in the word of God to be able to draw you closer to him, to be able to point you more accurately to him. And then you go behind his back and you usurp him or you go to his face and you don't uh, uh, submit yourself to him. I'm not saying you've got to be over the top. Oh, senior pastor or oh, this. There's amount of respect, right? When, when, when a police officer pulls you over, is it going to go well for you if you disrespect this guy? No, if, whether you're going to get a ticket or not is probably objective, but you submit yourself to his authority by pulling over number one and you obey you know, behaviorally to make sure that you are being nice to him. If you're not nice to him, guess what happens? It's probably going to get worse for you, isn't it? And so what he's saying here is obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls. Again, the pastor is taking care of not just his soul, He's having to be in, remember earlier in Hebrews, the priest back then had to offer up a sacrifice for himself first, right? And then he would make a sacrifice on behalf of others. We see this play out all throughout. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, but Jesus has used men through the foolishness of preaching to bring the word of God and to bring the truth. And how is it they will come to be saved if they do not hear it? If we don't send pastors and we don't send preachers. But the problem is across the landscape, people don't have any respect for pastors. They've got no respect. They're not obeying them. Hey, I need you guys to do this. <laughs> Jog on, buddy. Go do it yourself. But that's the thing. As a pastor, you should not be asking people to do something you're not willing to do yourself. If I'm calling you to holy living and I'm not living a holy life, that's hypocritical. If I'm calling you to volunteer at the church, but I'm not volunteering at the church, that's hypocritical. If I'm telling you to submit to the authority of the pastor, and I myself am not submitting to the authority of the pastor, that's hypocritical. It benefits you to submit yourself and obey the leader, as long as that leader is being central to the word of God, as long as that leader is accurately representing the word of God and is not being swayed to or fro from every wind of doctrine, but takes the authoritative stance, they will be able to do this with joy even though they already are doing this with joy, but not with complaints, for that will be no advantage of you. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to conduct ourselves rightly in every respect. I especially ask you to pray that I might be restored to you very soon. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, obey and submit yourselves to the pastor. The transcultural application for us is that we need to view the pastor as an individual that is going to be held more strictly. In the book of Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, if you don't tell them the full whole counsel of God, of their blood, I will require of you. That's what I'm saying of the significance of being called into the pastorate. I, when I grew up, my dad was a pastor. I wanted nothing to do with the ministry. I said, I will not go into the ministry no matter what. 
Mom's like, oh, no, you need to go to ministry. I'm like, I will not do that. I have no desire for that. I don't want to go into that. You couldn't pay me enough money to go into the ministry, which the ministry does not pay. You couldn't ask me to do that. Well, my life is a big sarcastic joke 90% of the time. <laughs> when God called me into the ministry, I was like, oh. But I did so willingly because I knew that this was not something that I sat at, at home you know what I want to do? I want to go into the ministry and have people attack me and, and say bad things about me and spread rumors about me that aren't true and think that they know me and they don't know me and all this other stuff and get late calls at two in the morning all the time and have to do all this other stuff and all these other counseling. Sign me up as I spill my water. Sign me up for that. No. The call to being a pastor is something I, I cannot explain it. It's something you cannot run from. It's just, like, you ever wring out a towel? You're a towel being wrung out. God's like, I got you. And when you accept that call, guess what? You realize how sinful of a person you really are. We have to conduct ourselves rightly. And when we obey and submit to our leaders, and when we do what we should be doing, oh, thank you, Grant. <laughs> when we do what we should be doing, it's an honor. Now, I want to give you an example. How many of you have ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Probably the most incredible theologian that America has ever or will ever produce. He pastored a church for 20 years to get kicked out of that church. You want to know why he got kicked out of that church? Because he said for you to participate in communion... You not only had to have a profession of faith, you had to demonstrate the works and the fruits of the Spirit in your life. And guess what happened? A bunch of the people who had ties that had been at that church for 30 plus years voted them out. Out of that entire church, there was a very small percentage that actually wanted to keep him. Look how quickly that church came back against him. And this dude, I mean, if you've ever read Jonathan Edwards... And if you haven't, shame on you, get into it. This dude was clearly chosen by God. And the people did not submit to his authority as it came to communion. One of the only sacraments that we have. And they cast him out? Hey, as Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor. Kick off that dust, leave on. That's what he did. And he, that didn't stop him. He ended up dying later on of tuberculosis. Shortly before he died, his daughter's husband died. And then his wife died months later, actually two years later, from the same thing. They got smallpox, developed a bad reaction to smallpox, and then she passed. So within a few scope of years, God called all of them home. Were you like, oh man, that's a shame? No. He did what God wanted him to do. Sorry. Jonathan Edwards' stuff is just awesome. You need to read it. All right, finish out this thing. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace, who by the blood of eternal covenant brought back from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, equip you with every good thing to do his will, working in us what is pleasing before him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory for... Holy smokes. You want to talk about a rich confessional statement right there? Bang, right there. Memorize that. Write that on the back of your foreheads. What I mean is put that in your brain. 
in case you guys were thinking I meant literally right on your forehead. Back of your forehead, get it? Brain? Whatever. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, bear with my message of exhortation, for in fact I have written to you briefly. Whew, 13 chapters is brief. Okay. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon, he will be with me when I see you. Greetings to all your leaders and the saints, those who from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. So as we finish this out, we see that the person writing this is very familiar with the people that he is writing. He understands the people that he is writing. He is edifying those who are not in Christ to come all the way. He is trying to edify those who in Christ to affirm their salvation. And he is exhorting them at the end, which if you think about it, preaching is a growth and an exhortation to grow the body and assembly of believers and to point them to Christ. The purpose of a pastor is not to make it about themselves. It is to step out of the way to try and point you to Christ. And the last thing that I ever want to be is an individual that gets between your spiritual growth and your knowledge of God because of something that I have said or done. That is why distractions and everything else, the only way churches grow is if God desires it to grow. And the recipe for success in church growth model is preach the word, the whole word. That's it. You preach the word, God will add to that number daily according to his standard and his time. Don't try and manipulate it. Let God give the growth. The persons need to get out of the way. So we see here in this final exhortation of Hebrews chapter 13, the Christian ethics for behavior towards each other, behavior towards ourselves, to those outsiders looking in. Again, we are supposed to re rely on the Lord. He's not going to leave us or forsake us. We see getting hit on several times in this passage of remembering the leaders, reflect on the outcome of their lives. We see that the pastor, the leader, is supposed to live a holy and godly life, a way in which you're like, man, I don't know how Christian living is supposed to be done. Oh, that's how, the, that's how he's doing it. Okay, but ultimately I need to be looking to Christ, right? Uh, that is our ultimate model, but in a practical sense, the man of God, the pastor, should be walking in such a close relationship with the Lord that you see, ah, okay, that makes sense, and go on. And then we see here, too, the, the, the salvation that Jesus has given to us, the crucifixion that happened outside the camp. We, we have to go out then. We're not inside this little bubble. We go out here. We accept Christ. We receive Christ. And through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Living, being a living sacrifice. Living in complete submission and reverence to do whatever God wants you to do. I mean, that right there is the hardest thing to do, is to live a life in a manner worthy of the Lord. Boy, what does that sound like? Colossians 1.10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then we ended here talking about obeying the leaders and submitting to them. Now I'm going to close this out.